we rejoice in it, God, that you have chosen to take our sins upon yourself and to, to die for us, God. We bless you for that. We thank you for it. Speak to us through your word now, God. In Jesus' name, amen. So this guy's name is Nick Ewing. And if you don't know this, I grew up with his dad, and I met him, I think, on the day he was born. And uh, the one thing you found out pretty quick was that he was an ornery little sucker. <laughs> and uh, I can remember one day, his, he would not get out of the back seat of his mother's car. He just wouldn't get out. And his, and his mom's like, Nick, get, get in the house. He's like, no, I'm not doing it. He's like three years old, right? So I just reached in and grabbed him around the waist. And literally all the way to his house, he just beat on me with his fist. <laughs> and I thought, God, you got to do something with this kid. This, this kid has issues. And, uh, and still, you know, God was still do, Still do. <laughs> still have issues. But I love this guy, and I've watched God's hand fall upon his life in so many ways. We're so blessed to have him. So thanks, Nick. Thanks, Tom. We were joking uh, last service after Tom told some of those stories, and Boomer gets up here, and he touts uh, family worship as just such a great and awesome thing. But all of us know the stories of, you know, when your kids are writing cuss words on the bulletin. That was my son, yeah. You know, and right next to the elderly couple who, you know, or my son brings cigars to children's church or a, an AR gun, you know, not real, and uh, family worship, amen, right? So don't, if you, if you sit behind someone like Boomer said, don't sit behind my family. Uh, we've, this is the second week of the series we've started, Grace Unleashed, and so our desire is to really ask God's favor on unpacking and granting us a deeper understanding of this concept of grace. And for me, I feel like grace and the person of Jesus cannot be separated very far. If I'm trying to define grace, if I'm trying to understand what it is, uh, I believe it's always understood under the, behind, beneath, around the shadow of Jesus Christ. Because uh, I believe that Jesus is is the one who has appropriated grace into our life. I believe he's the one who has defined grace for us. I believe he's the one that, that grace is realized through. And so as we, as we embark on this journey, uh, I just encourage you to keep that in mind, uh, to keep those two things very close together. Uh, I want to define a couple things for you. We're, today our message is saving grace. And so we're going to talk about the free gift of salvation. And with that, we have this word uh, gospel. And many times uh, we use the gospel for, for different things. We, we consider the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John um, in the scriptures. But gospel truly means the good news. And it's, it's almost uh, like a herald would declare good news. Uh, the war is over, the war is over kind of a thing. And good news in, in the scriptures is basically the reality that man and woman was born in a sinful, dead state, and that Jesus did something about it. That Christ came and had a solution for our disease of sin, and uh, as he came and took on our sin upon the cross and offers us salvation and says, I want uh, to remove your sin, I want to rescue you, I want to make you right and brand new. Uh, so when I use the, the term gospel, uh, I essentially mean uh, Jesus Christ's invasion on earth, his obedience in life, his death, 
his burial, his resurrection. And so that's, that's gospel to me. And we're going to spend some time trying to unpack that a little bit using some of the Old Testament, some of the New Testament, and uh, trying to, to understand and, and comprehend the reality that all of this is accomplished by God, that it's begun in the heart of God, it's fulfilled through God, and it is by grace alone, through faith alone, that any of us uh, have any opportunity to have true, real, lasting life. So, pray with me if you will. Heavenly Father, we come before you uh, like we sung. We need you. Every hour we need you. And so we need you right now uh, to speak. We need you right now to, to hear and to understand. And ask that you would grant us with all spiritual wisdom in accordance with the will of God that we might truly see God as he is that we would truly see our position of desperation. That you would be our fortress and our rock against anything that is evil. Anything that would keep us from coming to you with humility and with surrender. That would keep us from accepting the grace of God upon our life. We stand against in the name of Jesus. Amen. Ezekiel 37 is the story of the Valley of Dry Bones. And I want to use that to paint a picture of the, the human condition as we are born into. Ezekiel 37.1 says, The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. This is what the Sovereign Lord said to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So Ezekiel, I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound. And the bones came together, bone to bone. And I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them. But there was no breath in them. So this first picture we get, I, I believe, is describing for us uh, a, a, an example. When we are born physically alive, so we are born physically on this earth, but we're spiritually dead. So these bones that, that start to take shape and are covered with skin and have tendons, uh, but without any breath. And it reminds me of when God created Adam, and it says he, he formed him out of the dust of the ground. But then you remember, until God breathed into Adam, it says God breathed into Adam, and Adam became a living being. So it gives us this picture of us initially as these bones, simply with physical life but spiritually dead. Uh, Tom talked about our history together, so I grew up, many of my days were on his property in his home, and I can remember uh, his son Pat and I would play G.I. Joes, these little figurines, and we would set these little figurines up in Terry's rock garden and, uh, you know, flower beds and things like this to, to establish this world uh, to, to get ready for battle, right? And so we take our time placing all these little figurines, and I think this is a great picture of, in some ways, our state when we're born. That we are these, these little figures that the, this, this greater being 
created and established and, 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 and had a design and a purpose and a plan in, in store. And I think this is what a lot of theologians call common grace. It's the idea that God has bestowed grace upon all men and women in the fact that he created them. You're sitting out here, and, and I believe that you were intentionally designed and fashioned and formed by Creator God. That you weren't chance or mistake. Before the foundation of the world, He had the thought of you. And so this is one taste and flavor of common grace. Along with that, I believe, because we have experienced bits of goodness in our life, so whether that's a taste of love in our relationship or even just the, the joy that is filled with us. Maybe, maybe you're a nature buff. All these little things that, that have sparked bits of hope and joy and purpose, and most of those, I think, have to do with relationships and the people in your life. I think that's common grace upon all men and women that God has gifted us with, that we didn't conjure up, we didn't create, we didn't fashion. Matthew says that God sends the sun to shine and the rain to pour down on the just and the unjust, the righteous and the unrighteous. So G.I. Joes, physically alive but without breath, still under the common grace of God. But yet, as his creation, oftentimes we hear now, um, for, for, for at least a society that, that can believe in God or that tends to believe in God, uh, God is the creator, um, but there's no deciding factor between the children of God and just the creation. And scripture presents a very deciding factor, that even though we're all under the common grace of God, it doesn't say we all have experienced the personal, intimate touch of God that would bring bones to life. Specific grace that is offered to us. The principle of this helpless state, the principle of these figurines, is spoken of in Romans 5. And we won't read all this yet, but I want to highlight some words here for you. Romans 5, 6 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It says we've been saved from the wrath of God. That Adam, in his sin, sin entered the world and death spread to everyone, for everyone has sinned. Further, in verse 16, it says, For Adam's sin led to condemnation. It says we were guilty of many sins. This is the state that every one of us is born into. We, we inherited this in Adam. And again, you don't have to look very far, and I assure you it didn't take me three years to throw tantrums. Uh, immediately, we're born in this, this state of selfishness. Immediately we're born in this position and posture of uh, defiance. And so when, when God established his, his law, says his law was established in perfection, that his law is perfect, that it comes from himself. And so the, the word of God is synonymous with God. Because when he speaks... There, there's no variation. I heard a guy say one time, if I say, let there be light, I have to walk over and I have to turn on the light switch. When God says, let there be light, there's light. And so the law of God is perfect and holy because it comes from him. 
and he establishes this law. And in his old covenant, he holds up perfection and he says, I will be your God and if you obey me and keep my commands and my statutes, you will be my people. And so I believe what God is doing here is he's saying, here's perfection, here's standard, and here's how you enter intimacy and, and a marriage relationship with me. You have to be perfect. Let's give it a try. And over and over and over, the people of the old covenant kept running into walls, right? Falling and falling and falling again. And God continued to show them grace upon grace upon grace, even in the Old Testament. But I think the Old Covenant is something like a mirror, where a mirror we're to stand in front of, and we see the dirt. We see what's wrong with us. But the mirror does nothing to eliminate the dirt. The mirror does nothing to cleanse. Or an x-ray. Take an x-ray, you recognize a broken bone, you recognize something wrong. It's valuable to know. But it does nothing to heal. And I believe what the old covenant, covenant demanded, the new covenant supplied. When the old covenant says, I demand perfection, the new covenant says, by grace, I will perfect you. Grace can be defined as God's riches at Christ's expense. Ephesians defines it as a free gift, something that was not earned, not merited, not deserved. Lest sometimes we think, okay, Romans 5 declares that I inherited sinfulness, but really, you know, it's hardly my fault I was just born in this. And Ephesians 2 talks about our active participation in this sinful state. It says, as When you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in, whence, in which you once walked, you followed the course of this world. You followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The Bible is very quick to condemn all of us guilty of sin. And remember, this is a, with God and his holy law, this is a, this is a pass-fail test. And he says, one thought in the wrong direction. One morning when, when you woke up and you had a bit of selfishness about the way you would plot your day. One thing that you did that you knew you shouldn't have. One thing that you didn't do that you knew you were supposed to. And we fail. And it says, in our state of death spiritually, we do what sinners do. We sin. Now, I believe God's common grace, again, allows us to uh, make moral acts. Perhaps in, in my unredeemed state, I, I held the door for an individual. And again, I believe that's, those are glimpses of goodness that God wants us to see and to acknowledge Him in, so it drives us to Him. It's the law, Scripture says, is a tutor. And so you might experience, you might witness and observe some things that you'd categorize as good, but be sure that as, as, as the Greek word egothos defines good as holy, completely pure, not just in deed, but also in heart. 
not just in your actions, but also in motive. And none of us have pure motive all the time. I wonder if I ever do, to be honest with you. And so if we come in this condition, if we come in this state of death, what can a dead man do? Nothing. And not only are we dead, Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if you go down to uh, the book of John 3.18, it says, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon So not only are these little dead G.I. Joe figurines have nothing to bring to the table, but it's as if these little figurines plotted a coup against the creators of the world. That they decided they were going to defy these giants, Nick and Pat. That they were going to be resolved to do things their own way, to shake their fists, at their creator and to beat their chests and to say, I don't need you. That's ridiculous. But yet we do it all the time. That we sit here alive under the common grace of God and not one of us is sustaining our life, the air in our lungs, the blood that runs through our body. We curse God with the gift of our voice that he gave us. So not only are we dead with nothing to bring to the table, but the Bible says that we are enemies of God, children of disobedience when we enter this world. And I want you to think of how insane it is that in that state, now all of a sudden, if I say, I'd kind of like to be right with God. I kind of would like to experience the blessings of God. I've heard rumors that you can have eternal life. I'd like to go to heaven. Think of being in that dead, sinful state and saying, okay, to get right with God, I'm going to bring some goodness to God. I have no goodness to bring to God. Absolutely, completely, totally bankrupt. So how can it be anything but grace? How can salvation, to be saved, that word means to be made whole. When Christ first, when God first breathed into Adam and he was a whole being, physically, spiritually, in communion with God. And when sin entered the world and death entered the world and shame entered the world, that life of God left him. That's what it means to be dead. So how... And Adam and Eve, they tried, right? They tried to cover their shame with fig leaves. And God immediately says, that is not going to cut it. You cannot heal yourself of your own disease. There's a, a fascinating picture in 2 Kings 5 about a man named Naaman. 2 Kings 5, 1 says, Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor. Because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor. 
and he was a leper. So here's a man who's a captain of an army. He's said to be a great man, highly respected. That God brought victory through this man who didn't know God, common grace. But yet he had a disease. In this situation, leprosy. In your situation, in my situation, sin. And it was on every part of us. Whether you are an individual who God has gifted with skills, talents, and abilities and favor, maybe you're kind of in the have-nots of, of our society, or whether you are one who, who feels like he or she do, doesn't belong, the haves or the have-nots, Scripture set, sets all of us up as utterly void and impotent of any form of righteousness. So why do we continue to present ourselves in a way that tries to earn and bring about God's favor? The first posture of our hearts ought to be, I have nothing. But back to the gospel. Back to the good news. Ezekiel 37. Remember God's desire and his prophecy so these bones are physically alive with figure, but have no true life. God breathes into that flesh. In verse 9 it says, Then he said to me, the prophet, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, This is what the sovereign Lord says, Come, breathe from the four winds, and breathe into these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them, and they came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. The first position is recognizing our state. And in that state, to acknowledge and recognize, if it is not a free gift, I have no hope. If I have to bring myself to life, if I have to cover my own shame, I have no hope. I've already failed. I've been declared guilty. The good news, Romans 5, while we were weak, Christ died for the ungodly. God showed his love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And when Adam sinned, sin entered the world, and Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone. For in Adam's sin, this led to our condemnation. But God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sin. Verse 20 says, God's law was given so that people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned all the more, God's wonderful grace abounded more and more and more. And in Ephesians 2 it captures this in a very concise way. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of any doing on your own. It is a gift from God, not as a result of works that no man may boast. For we are his 
workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Many of you have heard this before. And my desire and my prayer is that we would continue to bring each other to the gospel, that we would continue to posture our hearts in a position of total gratitude and thanksgiving and recognizing our helpless state. All throughout mankind, there's been this idea and this awareness of a higher being. And so there's many different religions in the world. And all the religions of the world save Christianity, there is a, there is a, a higher being that needs appeased. And so we think of all these different ways to do this within our human minds. So whether this be Greek mythology or some other religion, you know, back in the day, the appeasing often looked like a sacrifice. That was, the, that was the highest thing that we could do. We're wrong. God's angry. We make our God so human-like. And so let's sacrifice what's the best we got. Let's sacrifice a virgin. Let's sacrifice a king's daughter. Fast forward to the man-made religions of today, and we bring about church attendance and tithing and giving and um, good works and all these things. But there's a huge difference between Christianity. That it never entered the, the mind of, of Homer or any other author or any other man that tried to conjure up a story of getting right with God. That the sacrifice would be God himself. No one, no one can think of that. That's not how it's supposed to work. We owe God, we owe the creator of our little G.I. Joe kingdom, we're guilty, but yet God in the new covenant says, what the old covenant demanded, my grace will supply in the person of Jesus Christ. Scripture presents Jesus praying in the garden, knowing that his hour has come to take upon the sin of the world. And if you remember the language in Romans 5, it says we've been saved from what? The wrath of God. The just wrath of God. And as Jesus tries to rally moral support with those closest to him and says, pray for me. Because I know I have to choose the cross in order to save my creation. And he does probably what a lot of us would do. I don't want to be alone in that moment. But yet, as he's praying... His disciples are asleep. And in that moment, when he begins to first shed blood for us by the stress of anticipation of being the target of Almighty God's wrath, he makes a choice. Your eternal destiny 
my eternal destiny. Damnation or life eternal hangs in the balance of that moment. And the God-man Jesus chose to feel the wrath so that you and I would never have to. That is grace. The life that he deserved, we get. The wrath that I deserved, he took. He hung on the cross for six hours, roughly. 9 a.m. to 3 p.m., Scripture says. And at some point in that six hours, my sin pressed in and stuck to him. I wonder what time of day your sin went upon Jesus. We're used to language of the cross. We're used to hearing Jesus died to offer you forgiveness. I don't know all of what it looked like, but we need to personalize the cross. We need to recognize that mistake you made, my false humility, that grievous sin of yours. 2 Corinthians says that God, Jesus Christ, became sin. That hung on Jesus at a moment in history. And Isaiah, the prophet, says what kept him there was that he saw your face. He felt the weight of your sin and God Almighty's wrath being poured upon him. And I assume it came in layers and layers and layers in that six hours. Here comes yours. Here comes mine. Here comes yours. Until the sin of the world was bore on a man. And in a moment, the wrath of God was poured out upon him. And he said, why have you forsaken me? He was no longer one with his father. That was mine. That was yours. Ezekiel 37, as God brings and breathes life into the bones and they come alive, is prophesying of this moment when Jesus comes to life and is resurrected from the grave and conquers sin and death. Isaiah the prophet says that it was the will of the Father to crush the Son. And I wanted to do this up here today, and I didn't know how to do it safely, so I'll just tell you. To get a little glass porcelain lamb, like an ornament of a tree, 
and to set it up here and to take a sledgehammer and shatter that thing to dust. This was the holy, just wrath of God poured out upon Jesus and crushing sin completely. Because it certainly wasn't hatred for Jesus that the Father poured that out. It was the reality that Jesus became sin. And God hates sin because it destroys his creation. And so whatever sins you're guilty of, I want you to recognize and realize that when the Father poured out wrath and took that hammer upon that glass upon Jesus Christ and it was turned to dust, that's your sin. His desire is to totally, utterly, and completely remove it from me. Where you couldn't find it in the rubble. So that which you're thinking of, that which you think disqualifies you, it disqualifies you from the holy, perfect union with God, if not for the grace of God. And so whatever you want to bring to the table right now, whatever Satan is whispering in your ear, that says, yeah, but you keep doing the same thing. It is dust. It is gone. God will not put it back together. He will not find it. He will not hold it against you. Ever. Acts 16, Paul and Silas are sharing the gospel, the good news, this message just removed from the events with a jailer. And this jailer says, what must I do to be saved? To have my sin turned to dust so I don't have to taste the wrath of God. That I can declare with full confidence by his grace and gift that it was nailed to the cross and Jesus paid the price. What must I do? And here's what they say. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. If you ask Jesus to forgive you, he will. I'm not totally sure how this all works, but I kind of think if you don't ask Jesus to forgive you, he won't. Naaman, 2 Kings 5, the valiant warrior, the great man who brought about many victories but was diseased. He hears rumors that you can be healed of your disease. And there's a man in Israel who can do it, Elijah. And so he asks his king in Syria, I'd like to go. Give this a shot. And so he gathers all kinds of treasures and gold and articles of clothing to come to appease his healer. And he goes to Israel, and he first goes to the king of Israel, and the king says, Who am I? I'm not God. I can't do anything. You come, you come to me with a disease? He says, You better go to the man of God. And so he goes, and he knocks on the prophet's door, 
And Elijah just sends his messenger to this great man. And the messenger kind of cracks the door open. Oh, you want to be healed? Well, the man of God says, just go dunk yourself in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be healed. The Jordan River is filthy dirty. And so it says, Naaman, the great man, who brought all this stuff to show and to appease, he brought his works to be healed. He turns away and he walks away angry. He's confused, but he's angry and he's frustrated. Dunk in the Jordan? Jump in the, dump in, jump in the dirty pond? Are you kidding me? You wouldn't even come to the door? You send your messenger? We have no concept of grace. Neither did he. And he turns and he starts to walk away and he has a servant. I'd love to know who this guy is. We don't get a name. He says, wait, wait a minute. Commander, I know if he asked you to do some great thing, you would have done it. All he asks you to do is jump in the river. And it says he'll heal you. So Christians, those who have been reconciled to God by the forgiveness of Jesus, are we going before the Father in the heart of this messenger? And even right now, are we praying for those who are lost that we know? Even right now, are you praying that the Holy Spirit would pierce their heart and convict them of them, their sin and let them for the first time see the grace of God that they can be washed clean of their disease? Christians, do some work right now. Or are we those that in the spirit of religion, we add to people. We're the ones who give them the gifts. It says, you better get it right. You better get together. Because you're, you're a screw-up. And there's a God. So you better do this, this, and this. Are, the, we, are we the ones giving them riches to say, good luck, go appease? There's hopelessness there. And there's weariness. Let's not be religious people that add weight and law that we're trying to convince dead people to bring themselves to life. Let's be those who point to the grace of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus that says, this is offered you. The cost was great but the gift is free. All you have to do is say yes. Thank you. Anyone who calls upon in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And your sins have been canceled out for all time. And like we sang today, we were an orphan who has a name. To be saved means to be made whole. It's dead bones that by God's common grace have skin and tendons and physical life. And then by the Spirit, the breath of God, become truly living beings who will live forever.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand and I stand right now in more ways than one. By your grace. And I pray that your spirit would open our eyes to give us a posture of repentance. We have defied you, our creator, the sustainer of our life. We were without hope and we needed rescued. And thanks be to God that you were determined to rescue us and that you have done all that is needed to cleanse us from every form of ugly impurity and unrighteousness and to usher us into your perfection, to usher us into your holiness, that we can call you Abba, Daddy. You have a place in your heart and that you have a place in ours. And I pray that if this is real and true and realized in our lives already, we would be so grateful and we would be so quick to deflect any glory that would come our way to you. And God, for those who have never tasted the forgiveness and the grace of God, I pray that you would open their eyes and that they would know there is good news. There is life in Jesus. Amen.